Good evening and welcome to another episode of Nigeria Politics Weekly. As usual, my name is Michael and co-hosting with me is Phoenix. We have one guest today. Our guest is Atiku, not the Vice President Atiku, but this is a different Atiku, Samuel Atiku. Atiku is a public policy consultant with the International Budget Partnership. We'll be discussing three stories this week. The first story we'll discuss is the Central Bank of Nigeria's decision to change the Nigerian currency. Then secondly, we'll discuss the security scare in Abuja that seems to be causing U.S., the Americans and other Western nations to withdraw a number of their diplomatic staff from the country. And thirdly, we'll discuss former Vice President Atikwa Bubaka's trip to the United States. So firstly, Phoenix, to the first story. Out of the blue, even I was confused because I I missed the headline on the newspaper. So I was surprised when I saw conversations on Twitter about the currency being changed. I thought it was fake news at first, but I began to see commentary from a number of respected economic commentators. So what what is happening, Phoenix? Talk to talk to us like you're explaining to kids. Why are we changing the naira? Or what are we doing with the naira, Phoenix? Hi, Michael, and uh, hi, Atiku. Thanks for joining us today. Hello, listeners. Um, I mean, so I think to answer that question, speak to what the central bank is saying this, this is supposed to do. Um, they, they, they adduced a number of reasons for, for doing what is essentially a redesign of the Naira. And that means that you're going to have Naira notes that look very different, have different features. And in parallel, the existing Naira notes will be will become obsolete and will be phased out. So basically, after a period of time, um, those not, no, no longer are seen as legal tender. So you need to swap them out. So people need to give up the existing Naira notes that they have and in exchange for the new Naira notes that are being created. The timeline they've given is that by middle of December, they will begin to put the new Naira notes into circulation. And by end of January, they expect the, the notes to all be swapped because from 1st of February, the existing notes will no longer be acceptable. Um, now, let's go to the reasons that they've called out. They've talked about counterfeiting. I mean, that that this, this would enable them to address counterfeiting. They've talked about um, money supply, that there's 80% of the currency outside of the bank vaults. They've talked about... Um, corruption and all those kinds of things. So those are the reasons that the central bank has given for doing this exercise, uh, which they say is a standard exercise that typically should be done within a five to eight year cycle. Now, having said all of that, one now needs to pass through the things that the central bank has said. Um, you, I mean, yes, indeed, re, I mean, redesigning um, local currency um, notes um, is a standard exercise that central banks need to need to typically do. And the primary reason, the primary reason that you see this done is really to tackle counterfeiting. Because what happens is that, I mean, you have people who are constantly trying to create fake notes and if, I mean, given the advance in technology and all of those kinds of things, if you have your currency um, out for, a, I mean, in the same fashion for a very long time, it gives people enough time to study and be able to recreate it and, and you begin to see a lot of counterfeits. So, so that, that's typically the primary reason. Now, we have also seen, I mean, central banks in certain countries, I mean, use this, um, um, redesign to swap out currency to exert some control. We saw Zimbabwe try to do it to curb um, um, inflation and devaluation of their currency. But more, more, more importantly, and the example that everyone has cited is, is the one done by India in 2016, 
to demonetize their economy to pull, to basically address uh, issues they saw as black money, i.e. Um, illegal, you know, illicit flows that they try to control by, you know, creating also a short window to swap out the existing currency with new, with new notes. Now, the, the issue I, I have, so for me, if we look at it from that perspective, there's no, there's, there should be no brouhaha around what the central bank is saying. Although the idea that this is done every five to eight years doesn't hold water because, I mean, in all the time that, I mean, in all the studies that I've done around this, and, and for good reason, because I've never heard of central banks, I mean, swapping out currencies every five to eight years, it just seems like a very short period of time. I mean, you only have to go and look at what the Fed has done in the US. I mean, the last time that the dollar bill was changed was in 2013. Before that, it was 1996, 17 years before. And if, I mean, look at the pound, look at look at the euro. What you will consistently see is that a lot of the plans that they have around redesigning currency is stated well in advance of when it's going to happen. It is a planned activity. Like, like I said, it is a standard part of central banking, of, of printing and, and you know, circulating currency. You know that it will happen. The ECB, the European Central Bank, announced as far back as 2021 that they will launch new currency in 2020, that they will redesign and introduce new euro notes in 2024. You have a schedule for the dollar bill that, that we already know, I mean, in 2020, they were supposed to change the $20 bill. You already know the currencies that will be changed in 2026, 2028. So it's a standard activity. So this, this idea that, I mean, it, it's done every five to eight years is ludicrous. And it's not a good enough excuse in my mind because, I mean, Emil Fieler has been in office for eight years. So he, he could have done it twice already. Why didn't he, why didn't he think to do it? So it then brings me to the, the, key, the key issues I have with it. Having said that it's a standard activity that shouldn't create any noise, the key issues I have with it at this particular point in time is the timing. To do anything on the Naira itself. Now I'm not talking about you know, standard monetary policy issues and all of those kinds of things. The Naira is the legal tender of the country. The central bank does not own the Naira. It manages the Naira. And that is why to make a change, and the, and the CBN Act expressly talks about the things, the authorization it requires. It requires the assent of the president for you to make such a change. So I then say to myself, we know we are going to have a new president in what? Seven months. So you have a lame dog president now. Why are you in such a rush to make such a change at this point in time? I mean, you, I mean, you could have waited until um, um, May or June, have a conversation with a new president who has a new four-year mandate, and then decide what you want to do. We are in such a politically charged time. We are in the middle of election season. It is just so poor timing to add this to the, the tensions around at this particular point in time. And you're like, the issues, the things, the reasons that you have adduced are not justifiable. I mean, you telling us about corruption, you telling us about money supply, I mean, when we look at cash compared to total money, money in supply, it's negligible. It's less than 10%. Less than 10% of, of money supply, total money supply is in cash. When we talk about corruption, we all know that corrupt, corrupt Naira is chasing dollars. It's not sitting as Naira. So, when, so all the reasons that you're giving us are not enough to justify the disruption this is going to create. We're still a largely cash-based society. So you have especially at the retail level, the market woman, the day-to-day, -day, you know, the, the organizer, the mechanic, the, even people buying fuel. So if you're going to disrupt that much economic activity by having this short window in the middle of election season, when we are about to change um, government, there had better be a good, a very, very strong reason for you to do so. 
and it makes you worry about the political undertones around it because then you recall that and you remember michael that we discussed this recently the president recently appointed his son his brother-in-law as the head of this of the agency that prints the the, the naira just if just a few months ago or a month ago or something like that and then you all of a sudden see that this rush to in to bring in new naira notes into the economy and swap out the old ones it it, it just smells wrong and the, and the whole manner of doing it is just off. And so that's the key challenge for me. The debate around whether it should be done or not is, is non-sequitur because for me, it's, I mean, this is a standard activity. In fact, there doesn't need to be, you give people notice and, and it happens, it happens and you, and you do it. But to do it now is just off. But it's in keeping with this central bank governor and the style of running this, I mean, the way they've debased the institution that is the central bank is it, just in keeping with all of what we've seen over the last, uh, you know, seven going on eight years, you know, just running the bank like it's a, an appendage of the presidency and just doing things that just do not help, you know, to bring positive outcomes to the country. And this, this portends another um, walk down that path. Thank you. Phoenix for shedding light on the issues and explaining to me in layman terms or layman's terms what is happening. Now to Atiku, obviously not Atiku Abubakar, Atiku Samuel. The question for you I have is, is, is two parts. The first is the finance minister was interviewed. I think she was actually speaking to the legislature and she was asked about this currency change exercise, and she said she wasn't told that the first time she heard about it was in the media, like the rest of us. So the first question to you, Mr. Atiku, is that, is, is this normal for the finance minister to be finding out at the same time as the rest of us on TV? The second question is the government, because I try to read the news reports, and one of the things they said they were trying to tackle was inflation. And... Can you talk more about that? Is, is this the solution to inflation? So over to you, Atiku. Yeah, thank you, Michael. Uh, I think the first thing is, um, if, again, the Minister of um, Finance, the Honorable Minister of um, Finance, Budget National Plan, National Plan. I think I need to emphasize that. She is the Honorable Minister for finance, budget, and national planning. If the Honorable Minister for Finance, Budget, and National Planning will come on air addressing the Senate and say she had not been briefed about these whole policy shifts, that raised big questions as to why will the President of Nigeria approve a policy shift that cost implication without consulting the Minister for Finance. Remember, the monetary part, budget, and national planning. That's the first big question. But that said also, understanding the governing structure of the Central Bank of Nigeria, you have a supervising board that approves every activity of the bank, including spending. Remember, the Central Bank of Nigeria does not necessarily run to the Senate to approve its budget. There's a government board. And on that board, the representative of the Minister of Finance sits on that board. It's actually the permanent secretary. So I'm shocked that the Central Bank of Nigeria, of course, being managed, I keep emphasizing that, the governor of the Central Bank of Nigeria, an APC member, a presidential aspirant will introduce a policy without getting authorization from its board. Shows clearly that there's a structural problem with the central bank itself. Now there are big question whether he did in fact consult the board and then he got authorization. But if he did that, a representative of the Minister of Finance sitting on that board would ideally have consulted the Minister of Finance. 
showing clearly that there's what you call, and that explains what we've been complaining about years and years again. The fiscal authority and the monetary authority seems to be running in parallel, running different governments without coordination. So to the question that you raised, I, I don't, I, I mean, it's a big comedy to think that the president of Nigeria will approve a course of action without consulting the minister of finance, even without consulting his cabinet. I mean, that raised question about even how the president see policies and then what he, how he makes the decision. And we've seen that repeatedly, of course, appointing dead people. I mean, we can go on and on and on for last seven years have been, I'll call it a big ball of disaster. Most of the policy pronouncements have not been well thought out. And that's just, I mean, reminiscent of who the president had become. Now to the question of inflation and, um, and this whole concept. Now, I have my doubts around the competence of the central bank government, but that said, I think it's important to quickly distinguish between two things. In every economy, you have money. Money is defined as any item of variable record, what you can verify, records that you can verify that can be used to purchase goods and services. So when people look at money, people think of money as that currency that you are holding in your hands. Money goes beyond that. So generally in Nigeria, we have two types of money. One, the first type that everybody tends to focus on when it comes to money is the one issued by the Central Bank of Nigeria. And it comes in two ways. It comes, there's an electronic version and there is, of course, the paper one that everybody holds. It carries the symbol, the emblem of the Federal Government of Nigeria and the Central Bank of Nigeria. That is typically called currency. Now, there's another money also, and I will explain it just again for clarity. If you give me a thousand naira, assuming there's only one bank in Nigeria called Bank A, and I am holding 1,000 naira, I decide to walk up to Bank A and deposit my 1,000 naira in Bank A. Bank A simply opens the computer and type in the computer that I've saved up in its ledger, 1,000 naira. And I go around under the presumption that I have 1,000 naira. So Bank A keeps that 1,000 naira in its vault, ideally, hypothetically. Now, if Michael, for instance, walk up to that Bank A and say, borrow me 1,000 naira. Of course, Bank A will give, we also go on this computer and type 1,000 naira and credit, um, or is it debit? You know, credit uh, Michael's account. So we have two accounts. In my own account, I'm reading 1,000. In Michael's account, he's reading 1,000. But in actual fact, the base money that is underpinning this money, this old money, is just 1,000. So in the entire economy of Nigeria, that small economy I just divined, we have 3,000 era. In other words, we have 2,000 era, which is actually an artificial money created by the private sector. And then we have the base money, which is the real money of 1,000 era. So anytime, and that's the whole context and the concept of fractional reserve banking, or you call central banking that we have today. So to manage liquidity, to manage anything, it is that real money, that base money that is used to shift the direction of an economy. So for instance, if that base money increases significantly, it means that Bank A can borrow more people money because there are rules governing it. And like I have maybe I don't want to go into these big lectures of monetary policy. But that said, when you see a central bank says, oh, the CIR rate is 20%, what it's simply saying is that you keep reserve, you keep cash reserve, you owe real money, 20%, and then you can create artificial money. And that's why when you look at the Bank of England and virtually all other banks in the world that are serious about monetary management, they always keep at bay that base money. So back to your question, Michael, you asked about inflation. The reason why inflation is going where it is today in Nigeria is that the central bank of Nigeria had been creating, had been printing and minting. When I mean creating money, 
that base money that I mentioned, that currency, sometimes you don't have to issue it in paper form. You can issue it in electronic version. And that electronic version is only accessible to the banks. But of recent, the central bank has also opened it up to Nigerians, which they call the e-Naira. So the central bank has been expanding its base money. As you speak today, it is almost about, almost getting to 15 trillion. So, meaning that all I need as a banker, knowing that I have 15 trillion in my account, I can expand and do what I want to do, anything I want to do, because definitely I am covered. And that's the whole concept of, and that's why we complain repeatedly that a mefele had ruined the economy. And is the inflation, I keep saying inflation is a monetary phenomenon. It's purely a monetary issue. I know people will argue and say, oh, it's bad road. The truth is that the roads in Nigeria are not good last year and got damaged this year. So when you are traveling from uh, Lagos to Ibadan last year and compared to this year, the road is bad. So inflation is just measuring price last year compared to this year. So the biggest pool that we're having in this country is the creation of the central bank itself. So to round up and pull everything together, how will this currency shift help manage monetary policy or have raining on inflation? I don't think there's any part to it. Personally, I have argued that if I, for instance, am to advise an incoming government on how to tackle insecurity, I understand that most of the ransom that has been paid to, what do you call them now, bandits, I always don't use in cash. And most bandits don't operate bank accounts, so they will typically have vaults somewhere. So if the Nigerian Financial Intelligence Unit is up to its work, the Nigerian banks are not complacent. The truth is that if you introduce and you're trying to change your currency within a short window of time, you can use that to force them into taking that money back into the banking vault or using that money to buy up dollars. And that's what we are seeing. But if they are using the money to buy up dollars, the question is that what is the central bank doing with the bureau de change that is selling criminal elements this dollar? So again, looking at what is happening today, and remember, it did not just start now. The run on the Naira started about two weeks ago, meaning that people had got wind that this thing is going to happen and they started making up their position. And so it defeats the purpose for which we are trying to do this. Regardless, I will say that the next incoming president still needs to change up entire currency, regardless of what the president have done. If the president is really serious about tackling corruption, fighting the insecurity that we have in Nigeria, which is actually being powered by cash, we need to find a way to actually reign. And then the, coming, the new coming president, the incoming president, need to take steps to ensure that that fund are not used by bandits to procure weapons to actually continue to fight the states. I think I'll rest there, but before, please, before I go, I think it's important I mention this, and it's very critical. I understand that there could be political reasons why these actions are being taken. Remember, election in Nigeria is powered by cash. Ability to pay those political structures, give them money. If you are doing this, it disrupts the entire architecture of how politicians have historically <laughs> been funding elections. And that could become very, very problematic going forward, especially for political actors. So we wait and see, maybe grab our popcorn and see how this thing play out. Uh, but just like um, Phoenix had rightfully said, it's going to distort and disrupt a lot of economic activity, especially the retail sector. And we hope that we are not walking again into another round of recession. Thank you very much, um, Samuel Atiku. Hopefully the listeners have heard your views and Phoenix's views and the debate will carry on and people reach their own conclusions as to the merits of what the central bank is doing. But on to our next topic, the security scare. Phoenix, it's not quite clear what is happening in Abuja. What we've seen in public is that the, the Americans, the British and a few other Western governments have either reduced services at the embassies or recalled many of their key staff. So can you talk us through what is happening, Phoenix? And should, should we be worried, Phoenix? Michael, we should absolutely be worried. We should be worried. And, and I mean, if we trace what has been happening recently, um, I mean, it's no gain saying that uh, we've had insecurity issues across uh, Nigeria and mostly 
I mean, I'd say almost everywhere, but of course, we've, we know that there is a, a significant issue in the northern part of Nigeria, which, is, which we now see coming towards Abuja. Um, a lot of the, the um, discussion has been around Abuja, and we've seen in quick succession um, some of the actions that have happened. I mean, recently we spoke about um, the the Kujay prison break that happened in broad daylight over a couple of hours and, and were not stopped, and and we've also seen I mean the attack on on the Abuja Cardinario way. So uh, this is not news. But what seems to have happened is that the situation seems to have escalated to the point where the US started issuing travel advisory and then up that to outrightly, uh, you know, moving non-essential um, US embassy staff out of the out of Abuja, out of uh, the country. And then, of course, we've seen other countries, as, as you rightly mentioned, the UK and, and, and so on and so forth. So there's clearly an issue. Um, in parallel, we've also heard um, news that um, our military forces have done some raids, done some attacks, almost as if they've been jolted into, into responding and taking action. Because, of course, it becomes a, an international incident and, and all eyes are on the country at the moment uh, with such an issue happening. And so we should be concerned. Even, I mean, we've heard from the horse's mouth himself, Buhari made a statement through Gabashi where, where while they were trying to downplay the, the travel advisory and, and the actions of the US and the UK and the like, they, I mean, he did say that people should be weary and cautious and, and, and bear in mind the security situation. So there's clearly um, there's clearly intel that tells the government that there is a problem. Um, whether how how much they're trying to resolve it, we, we, I mean, I really can't tell. One can only hope that they're 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 doing all they can and that they are successful in doing that. But there is clearly an issue, and we can only hope that uh, that they quickly bring that under wraps and and that the people in Abuja and across the country in general remain safe. I, I was reading a report yesterday, if I remember correctly, where um, apparently there was an attack on Kainji, what is it in Niger State or something like that, that was repelled by uh, Nigeria's armed forces. So there's clearly a sense that um, um, be it Boko Haram or bandits, they are escalating, they're offensive, and and one just hopes that the Nigerian military is well placed to repel them. But then, you know, the bigger concern is the timing of this advice and the timing of, of all of this happening. Again, going back to the fact that we're, we're in election season, where we are about three, three months, three and a half months, or well, let me say almost four months away from our general elections. Um, and this only puts more tension in the land, especially with an elections, election period that promises to be divisive as we begin to see um, the main actors and, 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 the, uh, and the situation in the country at this point in time. So it is worrisome that this is bubbling up at such a time. It is worrisome that, again, the, the government is not proving to be effective in handling the issues of security. Of course, they failed in this particular regard, but one would expect that given the time, given the situation, given the context of where we are, that they will heighten their response and try to deal with it. I haven't seen that as much. We haven't seen Buhari take charge. He's been out of, out of the country. Um, and so we haven't really seen um, that uh, coordinated response to show that, look, while they, they understand where the US and the like are coming from, they are capable and, and are putting are pulling out all the stops to make sure that uh, this issue doesn't become a problem for us. So it is worrisome. We should be worried. Um, I mean, uh, my, my prayers go out to, to, to residents of Abuja every day, and I'm hoping that uh, 
this this gets nipped in the bud and doesn't create this, an issue because not only is it the seat of power, one can only imagine that if 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 this crystallizes, it won't just be Abuja that we're talking about. So I mean, it's it's really one to be worried about. Thank you, Phoenix. Samuel Atiku, I've got sort of one or two questions. They're sort of one question, but two parts to... The first is, I don't know if you have the figures to hand, but since President Buhari came into office, how much has Nigeria spent on security, i.e. how much is Nigeria's security budget? How much have we expended on security? And secondly, why are we still having this level of security threat despite all that has been spent that that's assuming in your view we, we've spent too much can you can you talk us through what, what is happening at yeah looking at the um, the public expenditure of course by the federal government alone we're looking at roughly close to about 12 trillion naira if not more that have been spent on security when i mean security diverse and security in Nigeria, we use the word loosely um, buying equipment, paying salaries of um, the military, the police, and everybody, and all those kind of things. Uh, but it's important and critical to quickly say that if you look closely at the Nigerian military, for instance, the armed forces, and you pull them together in terms of the strength of their personnel, um, I think Nigeria do not have one. We do not have enough military men to actually man our borders, talk less of actually addressing internal conflict. And that has been, that we've seen that happen repeatedly. And even the little fund that is available, there are question marks as to whether it's been spent for the programs and the purpose for which it was set out. I mean, the outcomes is there for everybody to see. Lagos, Ibadan kidnapping in the Southwest. When you go to the Southwest, kidnapping is there. And then a lot of insecurity happening in that space. If you go to the South, South, you hear incidents of, uh, and even collusion, uh, damaging Nigerian infrastructure, things like pipeline and all those things. If you go to the Southeast, the problem is there for everybody to see the whole context of unknown gunmen and then this killing a man. If you go to the Northwest, the challenge is there with bandit or depending on who you talk to, some people will say, oh, it's actually some kind of ethnic uh, war going on in there. If you go to the Northeast that we've all known, of course, there's crisis. And then when you look at the Middle Belt, you said the North Central, uh, there are crises. So across the country, Nigeria is actually facing, I'll call it insecurity, though where it seems to be saved. I think that's one quick question. The second question, I mean, the second key point there is, if you look at why will the United States pull out its, I mean, try to take out their staffs quickly and advise citizens to leave Abuja. If you look at the history of Nigeria, it's one thing for foreign governments to announce, oh, these are red flags, oh, there's a terror alert. They advise people not to travel. To Nigeria, not don't travel to Abuja. But we've not seen the level whereby people start taking out their staffs. I think that's the scary part. And they start taking out people and then start moving them back to the United States. That's a big question. That's a very big one for us. The second one is not only them, if you look at virtually all international organizations, ranging from the UN, if you look at Oxfam's. If you look at the PLSO, that's you, you say United States Aid Agency, right? The security arm, they call them PLSO. If you look at DAI, if you look at SHAI, C-H-A-I, you look at virtually all of them, they've actually compelled their staffs not to come to office. Everybody should work remotely. That again raised big question and there are red flags for us. Shows clearly that even the UK government, of course, the UK mission in Nigeria, the UKI Commission, the way they're operating in Nigeria is like they're just, they're you're not shut down completely, but they're they are very, very being careful about how they're managing what's going on. And then coupled with that also, you see a lot of movements. I, I stay, I of course, I've been in Abuja. If you move around Abuja, you drive around, you will see some military gadgets 
being moved. And it started about three, I think four days ago. I saw this um, armored, uh, the armored carrier. With their go- so the military seems to be moving equipment around and all those kind of things. So that raised a whole, I don't know. Again, those are speculations, but they raise questions as to what is going on. Now, for me, I always try to um, look at things again, try to remember where we are coming from and understanding that the president himself cannot be trusted. I begin to look at the, I'll call it the uh, doze, the Pantami and his people were, is it Pantami? Yeah, is it Mal- Malami? I don't know the name of our to the general self. I don't know, the man has remained silent of recent. That was passing during those periods. So, you know, if there's a, if there's a serious insecurity issues, things can happen, ABCD can happen. And then you see Lai Mohammed, rather than addressing issues, he seems to be fencing, trying to actually throw bant around when people's lives are at stake. And then you see the president now coming up to say, oh yeah, there are challenges, but people should remain silent. But it's not doing it from Asurok. I wish it was in Asurok also, uh, staying with everybody in Nigeria when he's making the statements. Um, everybody seems to have gone, <laughs> seems to have disappeared from the country. I mean, driving the street of Abuja today, you'll be shocked that most of these big men, they've all looped, right? The airport is now filled up with people, people moving out of the country. So the question is, is there, is there a problem? Of course, certainly there's a problem. We only hope that it doesn't degenerate into, into what people have received that it will degenerate into, that's loss of life. Thank you, Atiku, for setting out the issues. My, my final question comes on this topic goes to Phoenix. Phoenix, you remember last week we had Cheta and he was saying that he was so concerned about the insecurity that he did not think any any of the presidential candidates will be able to take control of the situation. Now, you've heard what Samuel Atiku has said today. Are you still optimistic that it's, it's possible to seriously secure this country with the financial problems as well as the division in our security architecture, the, the officers disunited, and then the structure of the country? Are you still optimistic that anybody can do this job, Phoenix? Michael, I remain optimistic um, to the extent that, I mean, again, for me, the issue I've, I've always called out is around leadership, that we don't have that um, competent, um, sincere uh, leadership that truly wants what is good for everyone. If we can have that, we don't have insurmountable problems. I mean, if we did have insurmountable problems, we'd probably be in a worse place by now. So I still believe that we, I mean, the, the issues we have can be addressed. And I mean, I think I've said this several times. Uh, I believe that there is a candidate among them, I mean, that I clearly support who has that sincerity of purpose and the competence and the capability to come in and chart a different course for us to create a different way of addressing things, to take us away from all of these divisions and all of this, you know, um, things that seek to create tensions and instead diffuse those tensions and take us to a path where there is justice and equity for all, because that's really the that's really where things are breaking down. There, it's not that there are no bad actors. It's not that we don't have selfish interests, both in the political class and, and the military. But if we have a dedicated, and, and, not, and one person can't do it, so he has to come along or, I mean, right now it's only men that are vying for the president, but if we, if we, if we, if we have that type of a leader, be it male or female, they have to come along with like-minded types and build the, the kind of coalition that brings a different way of running the country and moving us away from all of these issues that we have. Buhari has exacerbated the issues we have. It's not to say that we've never had insecurity, we did not have insecurity issues before we had insecurity issues. Dating back to um, for as long as we've had this current democracy, I mean, we had issues on that, Obasanjo, we remember what he did at OG and, and, and uh, Zaki Biam and all those kind of things. I mean, we, we saw uh, Umar uh, 
Yadua tried to address the Niger Delta issue. And then, of course, we saw how the Boko Haram issue started out and got escalated with the killing of Mohammed Yusuf. So there have always been issues. The question is, what, how have the leaders responded to create a, a path for people who are genuinely agitating and make sure that those who are clearly looking for a breakdown of the country are dealt with decisively? That's what's been missing. Then you have a Buhari who comes in and, and doubles down on division. I mean, you know, sets one part of the country aside and we expect there to be peace. There can't be peace. And that's why we've seen the escalation of insecurity across all of the country. So if we have a different type of leadership, that can bring us away from the brink. And I believe that that is possible. Thank you, Phoenix. Well, in a few months we'll find out who's right if if it's possible for any leader to achieve what you're saying but to our final topic which is atiku's trip to the u.s atiku obviously is not your daddy but uh, both of you have the same name he's been in america for the past few days and many of his supporters on on social media have been tweeting excited excited excitedly showing pictures and telling us, providing us reasons why he's there. So, in your view, uh, Atiku, obviously Atiku is not your father, but why is Atiku in America? And is there any benefit to his campaign? Or do you think it adds any value to his campaign for him to be there? Atiku? <laughs> Thank you, Michael, just uh, for clarity. Um... Abuba, Atiku Abubaka, Abubaka happens to be his son name. <laughs> My son name is Atiku, so we have nothing in common whatsoever, uh, just for clarity. Yeah, yeah. So Atiku traveling to the US, um, I think there are a couple of things. One, perception. So there's been this big talk around his character. Um, people had accused him, remember, people had, um, there's been issues, and then of course, they are not even issues. Some of we have legitimate concerns about Atiku's financial dealings, especially when he was vice president. And then that has raised a whole lot of questions about him. And then, of course, people did. I know it was, um, was it Erufai that started this whole concept of, oh, he cannot travel, he cannot travel to the US. And if he travels to the US, he will be picked up, I think. So they were, I mean, there a lot of um, conversation going on there. And so he has decided to, again, just like he did in 2019, 2018, uh, to travel to the United States to show the world that, oh, I'm clean, right? I'm not corrupt. So uh, to actually demonstrate that you are not corrupt, the first thing you need to do is to go to the U.S. where you cannot be arrested and then raise your hand up and, and then so that people can look at you as if and you have no questions to answer. I think that's just all the political, I'll call it the PR stunts that the team seems to be playing. But getting to the US, now I have no problem with somebody traveling to the US with your own fund. Of course, it's not my money, as long as it's not taxpayers' money. But for a candidate that is traveling to the US, there are questions and there are outcomes that you're looking to achieve. The first one is, are you going there to speak to Nigeria in diaspora? Are you going there to speak to investors? Are you going there to speak to your supporters to convince them to donate into your, into your campaign? If that's legal, are you going there to actually meet with maybe people, maybe to hear more perspective around how to solve problems in the country? Uh, the first one is that Atiku had already dropped his uh, policy paper. And so he has not gone out to consult around ways to solve contextual issues that is affecting the country that will feed into his campaign. He has not gone there, or no, have I seen a situation whereby he has gone to solicit for funding for his campaign? I've not seen him actually sit with Nigerian diaspora and express, of course, his admiration, explain his policies to them and solicit their support. 
Uh, what we've seen is just, I'll call it a PR stunt that personally, if I look at it, it means absolutely nothing to me. Uh, take some pictures, get the cameraman to follow him around, make sure that you put in uh, one lady in every of your future frame that you're taking and then take pictures around and then post it on social media. That's the way it comes to me. And it's a disgrace if that's what we expect. That said, it's important to remember that Atiku Abubakar happens to say that he has about 11 million votes already in his box, that all he needs to do is just to gather those votes and then fight maybe in the north to win the election. And so I expected more in terms of going to the north to actually galvanize more votes for himself in the north. But um, again, so, so that I don't start sounding like a broken record. I don't, I can't see the direct connection between this uh, campaign strategy and what he's doing. And other than to portray himself as being without blemish. And we all know, even his closest ally knows that he could have a lot of questions to answer, ranging from the time he was at customs when he was in charge of enforcement and drug. Remember, he was in charge of, he was in charge of that department. And as at that time, Nigeria was known to be a massive drug. Um, a lot of, we have a lot of drugs flowing through the country as at that time. Then there are questions to answer about intent Intel, that company itself, how he left custom, and then the intern, even his closest friend, which is Baba, uh, <laughs> what's his name? Tinubu is even questioning him on that. Then we know doing the privatization agenda itself that was back, that the, pre the former president, President Ulusego Baso just started, there are a lot of question marks around him, and those things need to be answered. Going to the U.S. and taking pictures does not mean that those questions will not be answered. They need to be answered, and people need to ask him those hard questions. Thank you, Patiku, for taking a for setting out your views. To Phoenix, Phoenix, a number of people raised the the point that first of all, Atiku arrived in the United States. I think he visited the department for state services or Department of State. And the first thing a number of people noticed was the size of the entourage. They said it was too large. They said it was full of men, it was male-dominated, and it wasn't clear what they were there to do. And then the, the presence of Reno Mokri seemed to get a few people excited because for a while the article campaign or people on, in the PDP claimed Omokri had no connection to the Atiku campaign and was, was tweeting on, the, on his own. So how, how do you respond to these, Phoenix? Do you think these are non-issues? Michael, I don't see them as non-issues. Uh, to the extent, I mean, let's take the point you made around the size of his entourage. I mean, if we listen to Atiku um, and his campaign... Um, and some of the things that he has said with his manifesto, Atiku has tried to position himself as somebody who's coming to run a lean government, a pro-business government, and things like that. So when you juxtapose that versus the, the entourage that he's taking, I mean, clearly there's an inconsistency. You can't tell me you're coming to run a, a lean government, and then you travel to the U.S., while on campaign with this huge number of people that, I mean, we have no idea what they are there for. I mean, that, that, that's counterintuitive. So it already begins to tell you the kind of government that he is going to run. And that has always been part of my, my, my concern with his candidacy. He is going to run Nigeria the way Nigeria exists and the way he understands it, the way his generation understands it. I, I, I always remember what Michael says about Buhari of pomp and pageantry, but that's what the Nigerian presidency allows you to be. And I don't see Atiku being any different from that. And you see it from even while he's campaigning, where he should be sending those messages, you know, that this is how I mean to, to operate. You're seeing, you're seeing uh, 
the the inconsistency there. Then you talk about the characters that are part of that entourage. And you mentioned uh, the, the, the chap you just mentioned right now, who has been behaving like an attack dog on, on Twitter. And of course, as you rightfully said, some have tried to distance him from the campaign, but then you see him right there in the mix. So it also brings back, if you remember, we had some recent discussions, I can't remember what it was the week previous, it was uh, two weeks, two episodes ago, when we were talking about whether he's a unifier or not a unifier. You cannot carry, you cannot aspire to carry a unifier tag and then have people in your campaign in close quarters who are out there using divisive um, divisive uh, rhetoric, who are whipping up ethnic sentiments, who are generally behaving in a manner that is totally intent on, you know, sowing divisions and creating tensions. So all of this you, you, you take together and you say, I mean, this, I mean, people are right to be concerned and they're right to call these things out and right to show these inconsistencies and the way he's carrying himself about. And it just proves that, I mean, you're not, I mean, while I've consistently said that, of course, he, he is, I mean, while you're looking at um, uh, Tiko and Tinubu and saying, look, they're, I mean, they're the same and the same, at least he's a bet, he, he's a leg up. I always put it that way. When I then, you know, look at the whole trip, I think Atiko has talked about it. There's, it's, I, again, I, I, I fail to see the, the relevance of the trip beyond, you know, ticking that box that says, I, I can go to the US and come back. He did it in 2019. Um, he's doing it again now to make sure that, you know, whatever, I mean, people have concerns about, I mean, this, the, alleged indictment in the US that it doesn't exist and doesn't hold him back from, from visiting the US to go and come back. But it, but it just shows that that was the singular purpose because you can't see any other, I mean, for, a, for, a, I mean, for, for an election where he should clearly be the, I mean, clearly be one of the front runners where he is, I mean, the head of the ticket of one of the two big parties, you shouldn't just go to the US and go and be hanging around or meeting with one person. Uh, and and I, of course, I want to correct the the notion that, I mean, the assistant secretary for African affairs that he met is, is some low level person far from it. I mean, people should not, I mean, maybe people were trolling or, or whatever. Uh, she's a senior enough official in the US government to meet. But, it, but the circumstances around the photos that we've seen don't tell me that that was a high level meeting. She had no aides around her. She, I mean, you know, you can't have one, one person at that level in government meeting with so many of you. And there's, I mean, there's no, there's no other person, you know, there, if it's a proper official visit, it just seemed to me like somebody pulled a favor so that we can take a few photos and come back and say we did, we did something like this. There should, have, there should be a proper program that allows a particularly engage with Nigerians in, in the diaspora. And we haven't seen any of that. I mean, we've seen, we saw, we saw uh, Peter, we do similar trips to the US and consistently engaging, consistently speaking from one event to the other. So again, going back, I think the key points for me are the the entourage shows the kind of government he's going to run, which is antithetical to what he's been saying he would do. So it then tells us that some of the other things that he's promised, we should take perhaps with a pinch of salt, for example, restructuring, on which a lot of his PDP people, especially those from the South, are saying that, oh, that's why they're supporting him. But if we're beginning to see inconsistencies in his message, what's to tell you that, yes, he would actually pursue that, that, uh, that angle. And then, of course, my, my grouse is this idea that he's a unifier. And then you have people like uh, Renaud Mokri and Daniel Boala on your, on your team and some others who are clearly not of that ilk. So, I mean, anyways, I, I, 
as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> I, I see it as something that was expected. And we just hope that uh, more Nigerians realize this and make the right choice come February 2023. Thank you. Thank you, Phoenix. I just wanted to ask a question about, uh, there's another candidate that seemed to generate a lot of, uh, another individual, uh, Dino Medai, who was a member of the team. Uh, well, there's a picture of him arriving at the airport looking like, what's that rapper? Is it Puff Daddy? They call him looking like Puff Daddy with some weird head warmer. Just basically look like someone who just come from a, a rap set. So what is Dino's role in, in this campaign? And do you agree that, that, that were you, did you share the, the views of the commentators that his outfit looked inappropriate or do you not have an opinion on that? I, I, I really will say I don't have an opinion, but I don't have an opinion to the extent that I don't take you seriously. So I, I can't be bothered. But I mean, his, his outfit is on brand. So I'm like, what are people talking about? I mean, it's not like they don't know who Dino is or haven't seen him. This is on brand. So if he had come looking like a serious person, I think people would have been worried. So I, I can't, I, I, I really don't pay him much mind. I, I can't be bothered. Um, to, to the question around what is his role in the campaign, I, I really have no idea because I, I, I'm not even sure what electoral value he has. Um, I'm like, this is, I mean, he used to be a, a, a senator. He lost his seat. He's, I mean, what does he bring to the table? He, uh, again, I understand that there is, I think one thing I've also noticed, because if you, if you look at the appointment of Daniel Boala, if you look at the, you know, Mokri that we were just talking about, if you, if you look at what Dino Melai represents and what he's able to do again, is another one of those loud garrulous people who are willing to, you know, you know, take the fight and I mean, to, you know, say whatever it is. So maybe he's, you know, how they, how they say today, violence. So maybe Atikuri realizes that he's in a battle with, P with APC and it can very quickly become a rough, rough fight. So he's willing to have a violence department and that's where the likes of Dilo Melaye come in. <laughs> Their job is to make sure they give back or even attack first. But the challenge is that we haven't really seen them take on the APC as one would have expected. I mean, you don't see them taking on Festus Keamu and, and all the, it just seems they all, they both focus their attention on, on the Labour Party candidates and we have not seen them really go head to head. So beyond that, I'm like, I'm at a loss as to what value he adds to the ticket. But again, it goes back to some of the, 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 the conversations we've had around what's an article path to presidency. And I think that path is different from what it was in 2019. In 2019, you could see a more measured, sensible campaign that was geared towards securing the, 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 the PDP support base, having, a, having that intellectual heft to the campaign, showing that opposing view and cerebral view versus a Buhari, Albeit it was unsuccessful, but I thought it was a well-run campaign. This time around, it's been about, look, we have to go and secure the North. So we've seen Atiku play up to that. And because they, they then lost a, a, a valuable member of their party who went over to the Labour Party, and of course they've lost a lot of their traditional support base, it's almost like they've decided to to double down on, on this path of look, we'll go and try and fight it out, duke it out in the north and then see whatever we can get. And that has changed the dynamic of the campaign. And I don't think it's for the better. It's 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 really degenerated. And I mean, I'm sure there'll be lots more to see between now and February. Oh, thank you, Phoenix, for your contribution. Let me go to Atiku, for the final word. Atiku, obviously, it's expected that 
the candidate Atiku is going to meet with a number of interest groups in the U.S. What do you think his key message is going to be to those interest groups, both Nigerians in the diaspora and the business community? What what message do you think Atiku is, is, is planning to send to them? Well, I um, again, if you look at Atiku, what would be his message? I think his message is going to find up the whole context of um, oh, we are going to restructure the country. Because again, I've not come to, I'm yet to, I mean, understand why Atiku is running for president. We need to be sincere with ourselves as a country and then ask those hard questions. If you are seen as a unifier, and that has been my argument, if you're seen as a unifier, if you go back memory lane in 2014, when he contested against Jonathan, he stomped out of the Congress with the presumption, carry a big banner, that it is the turn of the North to rule. And he made some pronouncements, which I won't, again, I don't want to begin to find out those pronouncements. Hanging on the wave of the fact that Jonathan was stealing, I mean, the seat of a northerner to rule the country. He later went out of the party, start up. Remember, it's a foundational. I keep using that word. He's a founder. He's one of the people that actually founded APC. Spent some resources that if he spent some, of course, we were seeing him everywhere. Ran a campaign and then they took over governments. Now he has returned back to PDP and hijacked PDP. So what would be his message? His message would be simple. Oh, I'm running because I want to unify the country. Why in 2000, I mean, a few years down line, you were saying that, oh, the decision of Jonathan's government, I mean, Jonathan to run for president was most likely going to destabilize the country. That inconsistent messaging alone is enough reason why myself, I don't take him serious. All his campaign promises from air to toe, from the first page to the last page, you should always take it with a pinch of salt. That's the first key question. So the question is that going to the U.S., are you going to explain to the, to the U.S. government that, yes, you said, this in, you said this then and a lot of things have changed now? That's the big question. The second question is around the tension that's already happening in Nigeria. We could see uh, Benue State, especially for the ethnic minorities within the Middle Belt region of the country, they have serious problems and they face significant, in fact, a lot of people, a lot of lives have been lost. Mere based on that principle alone, you, given the fact that most of those atrocities committed were committed by your clan, you should not be seen as coming out again to say, oh yeah, I'm going to fix the problem. You should take a back step and look at what is happening. I mean, it's simple to think about that. Even a country that is not as diverse as Nigeria understand those simple principles. So the second question I'm asking is that, so you travel outside the country, you pull people together and say, okay, my people, are you going to say my people are doing this? You know what it did with the Deborah incident itself? Forget about how they tried to spin the whole narrative. Um, we saw what it did there. We know who he is, we know his positions when state governments in the southern regions were talking about uh, instituting laws to actually ban open grazing. We know his position during 2019, just that most of uh, people ignored it because he was contesting against a far terrible candidate as the president Buhari himself. We know what he said. So again, are you going there to actually say, well, I've now changed, just give me power, let me, take, let me take control of the military, let me take control of the Commonwealth of Nigeria, let me take control of the Central Bank, and then with that, I will be able, uh, this new change me, we begin to repair the country. I don't think that's going to happen. Then more importantly, more importantly, he, per adventure, he wins the election, 
what do you think will become of the country that we are? Do you think that resentment will fly away? Those resentment that's already heavied up, that's actually finding up a whole lot of ethnic, uh, ethnic laws and all those kind of things already happening in the South and the Southwest, and then to, to some particular degree even the South South. Are you saying that because you become the president of this, all those things will fly away? Um, personally, I don't think he has any message to give to anyone other than he has, he has find a very good opportunity to hijack and grab power, and this is my time to grab it. Let me spend some dollars to get it done, and then that's it. I think I end my, I end my statement here. Thank you very much, Atiku. Um, hopefully next week we'll get somebody from the PDP side to be a guest, so that they won't, we won't be, I won't be accused on social media of running an anti Atiku podcast. But thank you, Atiku. That's that's you, Samuel. Not not your uh, not, not the candidate. Thank you, uh, Atiku Samuel, for taking time out of your busy schedule to be here. Thank you, Phoenix, for co-hosting the podcast. And last but not the least, I say thank you to our listeners for being loyal and giving us helpful feedback. So until the same time next week, I say have a fantastic seven days to everyone. Thank you, Atiku. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, listeners. Um, have a great week.